0: Good morning. I'm going to get started because we've got a lot of ground to cover. And if I could ask Kath, it might might be good to dim some of these lights here in the middle because we're going to focus on the slides, not necessarily on me. Um, Let me introduce myself. My name is Jeff Barrows. My background is that for many years I practiced OBGYN in Ohio and then in 1999, I began working with the Christian Medical Association, actually heading up one of their uh, short-term mission outreaches, uh, Medical Education International. And through my work with CMDA, in 2004, I became aware of the issue of human trafficking. Uh, initially did some, some work with uh, researching the health consequences of human trafficking, how to train healthcare professionals on human trafficking, and then became more and more involved in the domestic side of trafficking. And in 2008, I started an organization called Grace Haven. Uh, There's some brochures out there, and I'll talk about Grace Haven uh, at uh, at the end a little bit about our work. But uh, that gives you a little sense of my background and involvement in this whole issue. Uh, What I'm going to focus on today, this is kind of a combination of a couple of different talks that I've done I'm going to talk about the issue of domestic minor sex trafficking, and I'll be defining what that is, and then how it relates to healthcare professionals, because I know that many of you here uh, at this conference are, have some involvement with healthcare uh, since it's a medical missions conference, and I want to kind of talk a little bit about the interface between healthcare providers and their responsibility and ability to identify and help these victims. So that's going to be our talk today. This is my educational objectives, just to realize in greater amount the extent of the phenomenon of DMST, domestic minor sex trafficking, to be able to identify the signs that a patient may have that if they are a victim of DMST and be able to take some concrete steps by the time we're done. And it's going to take, I'm going to try and leave about five minutes for questions, but I've got a fair amount of ground to cover and 50 minutes to do it. So the best way in my mind to illustrate what domestic minor sex trafficking is, is to tell you the story of Jill. This is not Jill's picture. I would not show Jill's picture. But otherwise, this story is unfortunately completely true. And it's a very typical scenario for domestic minor sex trafficking. At age 14, after Jill had been sexually abused by her stepfather, she ended up running away from home. And that's a lot of, that's very commonly the way that these girls start out. If you've got a girl being sexually abused in the home and the mother does not step in to protect her daughter, she only has two options then she can stay and put up with the nightly abuse or she can run away she doesn't have a third option and unfortunately all too commonly the mothers for whatever reason do not step in they choose to ignore it lots of different reasons but they do not step in so Jill ended up running away at age 14, and she went to a common place that a lot of the girls go, a place that's familiar to them, that they're comfortable at, that they've been at frequently, and that's a shopping mall. A lot of these girls go to the shopping mall initially. Unfortunately, traffickers know that the girls go to shopping malls. And if you stop and think about it, it's relatively easy to pick these girls out. They're not going to have a big shopping bag. They're going to be hanging around by themselves, especially around closing. They're going to look a little dirty, maybe like they haven't had a shower in a couple of days. And all you have to do is think a little bit about it, and you know, you could probably pick these girls out fairly easily. Well, the traffickers know these girls, and a guy by the name of Bruce came up to Jill and said, You know, you look like you need a place to stay. I run a business out of my home, out of my basement. I'll pay you to be a secretary for me. You can come and go as you want. You want to continue in school, you can do that. If you get tired and you want to move on, you're free to go. But you can have a warm place to sleep. I'll feed you. I'll take care of you. Well, at age 14, when your alternatives are the street and the unknown, and this really nice guy who says he's going to take care of you and pay you money to work for him, What do you think Jill did? She went home with Bruce, like these girls typically do, because they don't have a lot of options. Unfortunately, Bruce was what we call a gorilla pimp. His basement hadn't been finished off. He had rafters, you know, the, 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 the joists from the floor, and he hung Jill from the rafters, raped her, stripped her down, and beat her and tortured her until she agreed to work as a prostitute for him. Part of the torture was he hung her. So she had a scar across her neck and permanent damage to her vocal cords. He tied her up so she had scarring on her wrists and his an- her ankles. And, of course, at 14, it was only a matter of time before she agreed, just in order to survive. Unfortunately, a lot of Bruce's clients would pay extra to do very strange things to Jill. And this was fine with Bruce as long as they paid. Well, eventually, this happened over three years. Three years, she was tortured down in this basement. Eventually, she became pregnant. Bruce had a quandary then. His way to make money was going to change because as she got further along in the pregnancy she would be less appealing to the customers. On the other hand, he couldn't just take her easily to an abortion clinic because they might find out what he was doing with Jill. So he decided he was going to try and get rid of the pregnancy himself. As a non-medical person, he got himself into trouble. She got into all kinds of hemorrhage. And finally, he was left with another quandary He's got a a young girl bleeding to death that may die in his basement. He's going to lose his source of income, or he could take a chance and take her to the emergency room. So he ended up going to the emergency room. This happened to be in Los Angeles. Now, Bruce is a very bright guy, like most of these traffickers are. They're very bright. They're smooth talkers. they got great stories. A lot of finesse. He takes her into the ER... And he says to him, this is my sister. Our parents were killed in an automobile accident a couple of years ago. And ever since the automobile accident, she's been a little crazy. She makes up all kinds of stories. So I have to tie her down. And I'm the only one she's got in the world. Will you help me take care of her? Well, unfortunately, she says she's got schizophrenia. Unfortunately, the ER bought it hook, line, and sinker. You stop and think about it. There are a lot of signs that we could have picked up on or the ER people could have picked up on. First of all, there's signs of abuse. If this is your sister, do you really need to tie her down by her wrists and ankles? What about the strangulation mark across her neck? The other thing is, Bruce does all the talking. Jill never gets to say a word. That's a big tip-off. Even if you've got schizophrenia, you have the ability to talk and interact to some degree. Then there's the whole clinical situation. Okay, if you're Jill's older brother and you've got control of her all the time, how'd she get pregnant? There's a big gap. Well, unfortunately, no one in the ER took the time to think through the story. But if you really do take that time, you see that the pieces do not fit. At first, it maybe kind of makes sense, but no, not really when you think through. So what happened? Well, first of all, what would be a proper investigation? What would have been the right thing for the ER personnel to do? The first thing would be to get Jill alone. Say to Bruce, okay, we've got to do a pelvic exam. There's the waiting room. And then you get her alone, and you begin to ask her to Jill. Tell me, what's going on? Did your parents, were your parents killed in an automobile accident? Is Bruce your older brother? They never got her alone. Never got a chance to talk with her alone. Obviously, you want to get a psych consult. Does she really have schizophrenia? The other thing you want to do is you want to get a social services consult. Have them do the background. Is she truly someone who had her parents killed a couple of years ago? Is Bruce truly her brother? Unfortunately, she was in the hospital for three days. She went and had a DNC, had to have blood transfusions because of the blood that she had lost. I have to believe there was evidence of trauma in the vagina and on the cervix and the uterus from the botched abortion attempt. Somehow that was overlooked. While she was in the hospital, there was never any mental health consultation, never questioning of Jill alone, and she was discharged after three days. In fact, I am absolutely convinced that Bruce had those nurses feeling that he was the greatest brother in the whole world. I can imagine them standing at the nurse's station saying, you know what, she is so lucky to have a brother like Bruce, he never even went home. The whole three days she was here. He hasn't taken a shower, he won't leave her bedside. He is so devoted to his sister she is so fortunate to have him in her life. Little did they know what was really going on. Now, my thought why didn't the ER personnel really investigate? I used to work as an ER physician before I went into OBGYN. What are most ERs like? They're very busy. Lots of things going on, in and out. You know, just deal with the issue at hand and let's move on. This story seems to make sense. Okay, let's, let's move on. Next patient. It takes time and it takes effort to begin to recognize maybe something else is going on besides what the story is telling you. Unfortunately, that wasn't the end. Shortly after this, Bruce decides he's going to take Jill on the road. So he puts her in the back of his pickup truck. Believe it or not, broad daylight, he ties her up, gags her, puts her in the back of his pickup truck and he drives across Southern California into Arizona. Decides to stop at a truck stop to get a drink. Broad daylight lets her out of the back of the truck, unties her, takes the gag off of her, walks her into the truck stop. Well, she's been in the back of this truck in the hot sun, she's been dehydrated. Guess what happens? She has a syncopal episode right at the door of the truck stop. EMS is called. Again, Bruce... Pulls out his story. This is my sister. We lost both of our parents in an automobile accident two years ago. She's got schizophrenia. I have to take care of her. She has all kinds of weird stories. Blah, blah, blah. What does EMS do? Some other things to think about. She's dirty from head to toe, sores again on her wrists and ankles. But what does EMS do? Give her an IV, a couple liters of fluid and they're gone. They're out of there. They don't want to mess with this girl. In this particular case, I imagine, and we have to recognize if we are taking care of patients, that a lot, very commonly, the way these girls will present is they're going to be filthy dirty. They're going to smell. They're going to look weird, and they're going to act weird because of the trauma that they've undergone. And you know what? If we're honest with ourselves, our first reaction to them is going to be, ooh, I don't want to mess with that. You know? That's our human response. And I'm sure that the EMS just looked at this smelly, dirty, weird-looking girl and thought, let me get out of here as quick as I can. It's a natural human response. They left Jill later tells the story that as Bruce is tying her up and putting her back into the back of his pickup truck in broad daylight, there's an elderly couple that are getting into their Cadillac in the truck stop, and the elderly woman waves to Jill as Bruce is pushing her down in the back of the truck, and he drives off. She was only later able to escape when the police raided Bruce's house for drugs. They had no idea she was there. They found her bound and gagged in a closet, half out of her mind. And that's how she was freed. And all of that prior to jail reaching age 18. That is domestic minor sex trafficking. And it's happening all over the United States. It's also a very good illustration of how we in healthcare will encounter these victims and have the ability to identify them and free them if we are trained and if we take the time. Very briefly, I don't want to spend a lot of time talking about human trafficking. There are some other talks that will be given during the conference on that, but basically, A good basic definition is human trafficking is any form of extreme exploitation of one human being by another for personal or financial gain. Now, I say personal gain because one common form of trafficking is bringing people in as domestic servants. They'll work in the household. They're not gaining financially from having them in the household, but they're basically using them as their personal slaves around the house. That's a very common form of trafficking in the United States. Another form is commercial sex, which is sex trafficking. Human organs, there's trafficking in human organs, war brides, and child soldiers. So that's a very brief overview. Um, I just want to point out that when you're dealing with adults, legally, to prove trafficking, you have to prove one of three things. Force, fraud, or coercion is being used to control that person. But when you're dealing with a minor, it's different. And I'll talk about that in a minute. A lot of people think that trafficking means moving people from one place to another. And I want to push that out of your minds. You can have someone here in Louisville, raised in Louisville, trafficked out of their own home. They never move from their, where they live. It's not uncommon to find girls that are trafficked by their mother or stepfather or father. So there's absolutely no requirement for movement with trafficking. It is degree of exploitation. Now, domestic trafficking, this is where it gets a little confusing. There are all these different terms that we're throwing out. But domestic trafficking refers to trafficking of citizens in their own country. So, when I talk about domestic trafficking here in the United States, I'm talking about U.S. citizens. If we're going to talk about domestic trafficking in Britain, we're going to be talking about British citizens. So, it's trafficking of citizens in their own country. Domestic minor sex trafficking is a minor is anyone under age 18. So, domestic minor and then sex trafficking is when we're trafficking them for commercial sex. And that obviously, is Jill's story. So that's really a good way to understand the various types of trafficking. There's international trafficking, which does involve movement of people across an international border. And then there's domestic trafficking. There's labor trafficking. There's sex trafficking. Those are the most common types. But again, I want to focus today on domestic minor sex trafficking because it is the most common form of trafficking In the United States today. Now, in the year 2000, Congress passed a law called the Trafficking Victims Protection Act, the TVPA. And within that act, they rightfully decided that it was impossible for an 18-year, someone under 18, to give consent to commercial sex. Therefore. When a minor is found involved in commercial sex, it is unnecessary to prove force, fraud, or coercion to show that that girl or boy has been trafficked. All you have to show is that they've had involvement in commercial sex and they're under age 18. So it's very easy then for us under federal law to prosecute traffickers when they're, they're dealing with minors in commercial sex. That's different than adults. To prove for an adult, you have to have force, fraud, or coercion. With a minor, only that they're in commercial sex. Now, commercial sex can mean a lot of different things. Commercial side, something of value needs to change hands, but it does not have to be money, necessarily. Okay? Anything of value. So if a guy says to a runaway girl, you can sleep in my house tonight, but you have to have sex with me, he's exchanged something of value, a place to sleep, For sex. So technically that is a commercial sex act. Also food and drugs. That makes the definition very broad and it allows federal authorities to prosecute on a more broad level. In addition, a commercial sex act is not just prostitution. We we would uh, call stripping. A 14-year-old at a strip club is involved in a commercial sex act. Or pornography, obviously. The production of pornography is, involves uh, exchange of money. So that also is within the definition of domestic minor sex trafficking. If you pay the price, you you it for you. Really? Well, hang on to your head. I don't think that's yeah, okay, there. Yeah, that'd be great. Well, you want to add something to that. Yeah, sure. You, sure. what you want to add to that too? It's not really. Well, uh, like I said, this is my first time well, out. You know, uh, you... So the girls only yeah. need cost two, is this, that? That's the women. The women. Now, if I told you two, and you know you know, some younger I take this and mm-hmm. add something to it, just tell me, you just pick a filler to that. Right. Uh, and it's, uh, what, three? Three. Three domestic minor sex trafficking. The buying and selling of America's youth for sex is a very real problem, and it's happening right here in the United States. When you have um, drugs, when you have guns, and that type of thing, you have to replace your your product. You have to come up with more drugs. You have to come up with more arms. You sell them once, they're gone, and you have to come up with something else to sell. Trafficking individuals, children with adults, we can solve them over and over and over again. We've conducted field assessments in locations all across the United States. And I can say with certainty that sex trafficking is occurring here within our own communities. American children are being sold in commercial sex markets every day. So how many young people are we talking about? Across the United States. Well, in his testimony this last summer, before the House of Representatives Trafficking Caucus, Ernie Allen, who's the director for the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, says that at at a minimum, at a minimum, we have 100,000 U.S. boys and girls that are currently being trafficked across the United States. Potential is as many as 300,000 American youth. But the bottom line is at least 100,000. Where do these girls come from? Well, just like Jill, they come out of abusive homes. You start and look at the numbers of kids that run away each year, it's actually in the millions. I think it was 2008, 2.8 million children were missing from their home for at least 24 hours. Now, the vast majority of those runaways are kids that get mad at their parents and they run and they go to a friend's house, probably 70 80% of those. But you start out with a number of 2.8 million kids that run away and you just take 5% of those as coming out of abusive homes like Jill and it's easy to see why we have a number like 100,000 or 300,000 kids that are being trafficked. So the vast majority of trafficking victims are the runaways. There are occasional cases of girls that get kidnapped. Uh, And in addition, we have on our staff at Grace Haven, a gal by the name of Teresa Flores. Teresa, when she was 15, was drug, was date raped. They filmed it and then they blackmailed her into providing sexual services for members of this crime gang in her neighborhood threatened her parents threatened her brother they threatened to kill her unless she did that and as she's gone around speaking she's had other girls come and tell her similar stories that they've been through similar things so we know that that happens with some degree of regularity but we estimate that about 80 percent of the girls that are involved in domestic minor sex trafficking are girls like jill so they come out of an abusive home What is their mindset, their psychology? As they come out of an abusive home, they suffer from low self-esteem. They've often never been told they have any value at all, never been told that they're beautiful, never been told that they're attractive, that they have any worth. And unfortunately, these traffickers know that. So there are two types of traffickers out there. One is what we call a gorilla pimp, which was Bruce. They will initially fool a girl into their home, but once in their home, they completely use brute force, fear, to control the girls. Fortunately, the gorilla pimps tend to be less common than what we would call a finesse pimp. The finesse pimp is a little more common. They tend to be an older guy, 20, 28 years old, very smooth talker again, but they actually court the girls. They finesse them. They pretend to be a boyfriend for several weeks. And they understand the psychology of the streets. They know that these girls have low self-esteem, never been told how beautiful they are, so they tell them that. They tell them how wonderful they are, how, how great person they are. They're, they're beautiful. Why, why don't you have a boyfriend? What is wrong with the guys in your school? And of course, when you're 14, 15 years old, you automatically are very taken when an older boy is talking to you. That's an average normal teenage thing. I got a 19-year-old boy interested in me? Wow! You take a girl that comes out of this abusive home, and she gets hooked very quickly. So they trap him in the relationship. They tell her. How beautiful she is. How much they like her, love her. They give her gifts. Often she's never been given a gift before. And so they fill that, what I call the hole in their heart. And they get this girl trapped into a relationship. What we've learned is that overwhelmingly, uh, while these kids uh, may leave home voluntarily, may, while they may be runaways or uh, any, any one of a variety of variations on their thing, um They are seduced, they are tricked, they're lured uh, into this practice, and then they lose the ability to walk away. Uh, These kids literally become 21st century slaves. It was the things that he said were things that I've never felt before. I actually felt like I was loved by somebody for the first time. And I put all of my trust and all of my faith in him. And the way that he got me was he told me, let's go for a ride. I had to pick something up in Indianapolis. And he said we were coming back that night. So I drove with them out to Indianapolis. And when we got out there, that's when he told me we weren't going back. There's a whole science to the aspect of pimp control. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it. But As this finesse pimp moves from being very nice to the girl and giving her gifts, he begins to exert more and more control over her over a period of weeks, wanting to know where she is, wanting to know when she gets home from school, if she's still in school. And eventually he will work and get her separated, just like Kelly's story. Very key. They will investigate what is their support base, if any, whether they're in a foster home or group home or whatever, whatever, what is their support base? And then they want to draw them away from that support base so that they're more reliant on them. When you get that, that girl in a place where different state, different city, they're totally reliant then on the pimp, and then he's got her exactly where he wants her. She, she's leaving home. She's leaving home for a reason. More than likely, she just got into a whatever she accident. She decides to she, you know, run away from home. It really doesn't boil down to money. If she in it for just the money, then that's then not going to really work out. You see what I'm saying? The girl has to be so love drunk, if you will, off of me to where it, though so she would do anything. I make sure she has what she needs, personal hygiene, you know, take her, get her nails done, take her to buy outfit. You know, spend time with her, you know take her out to eat no make, make her fit you know but I don't give her one thing I like about that little clip is when the when the one pimp says she has to be so love drunk what a great description and they understand the psychology they are professionals at this in fact there's a whole training that they go through to get these girls hooked on them Not only that, there's a book on Amazon that tells them how to do it. It's called The Pimp Game, an instructional guide. Now, if it isn't bad enough that this is on Amazon, believe it or not, it's rated four stars. This is what our world is coming to. Let me give you a quote from this book. You'll start to dress her, think for her, own her. If you and your victim are sexually active, slow it down. After sex, take her shopping for one item. Hair and or nails is fine. She'll develop a feeling of accomplishment. The shopping after a month will be replaced with cash. The lovemaking turns into raw sex. She'll start to crave the intimacy and be willing to get back into your good graces. After you have broken her spirit, she has no sense of self-value. Now, pimp, put a price tag on the item you have manufactured. This is happening every day in every major city across the United States. And I didn't find out about it until 2007. That's not the only book. Another book, Pimpology, The 48 Laws of the Game by Pimpin Ken. Also rated four stars, by the way. So where are the girls sold? I have been in a, a car with the vice officer of uh, Columbus, Ohio, where I'm from. He'd been on—he'd been a vice officer for a number of years, and the first thing he said to me as I got in the back of the car, he said, "You know, Dr. Barrows, we don't have young girls here in Columbus." And my heart sank because he didn't understand the issue. These girls are sold not on the street. They're sold on the Internet. The Internet is the new street. Okay. Up until about six weeks ago, the most common place for them to be sold was Craigslist. Craigslist has shut down their adult erotic section as a result of letters from several state attorney generals across the country. I have mixed emotions about that because talking with law enforcement, it was very easy to find the traffickers through Craigslist. They loved Craigslist. The FBI loved Craigslist because they could trace them and get to the traffickers. And there were a lot of people that that felt, okay, if we shut down Craigslist, we'll stop this. No, we're not going to stop it by shutting down Craigslist. These guys go now, they go to what's called Backpage, which is very similar. And I don't understand why, but finding the traffickers on Backpage is much more difficult for law enforcement than it was on Craigslist. But Backpage is very similar to Craigslist. Every city, every major city in the country has a Backpage listing. You can go to an adult section and then you'll find all kinds of listings for women in prostitution, including young girls. That's where most of these girls are being sold. They're not on the street. What about Ohio? That's obviously where I'm from, where I know the most about. I'm involved in a uh, study commission that was formed a year ago under the Attorney General's office. And we actually released a a report in February of last year, estimating, to the best of our ability, the number of victims in Ohio. And we found that there are at least 1,100. Again, that's a low number, probably more like 2,000, which would fit pretty well with the 100,000 across the country. But we could pretty well prove that there had to be at least 1,100 in the state of Ohio. Now, you break that down into numbers within a major city like Columbus, and you have to have about 50 to 100 girls in Columbus. And I would estimate that that's probably what's here in Louisville, between 50 and 100 girls being sold on Backpage and other uh, Internet sites right here in Louisville. Some recent cases. These have just come out in just in the last couple of weeks. I don't know if you've been listening to the news, um, but there was a Somali sex ring that was recently broken, I think it was just about a week ago, by the FBI. Uh, These were Somalis. They were taking girls, recruiting them mainly out of Minneapolis, the Somali population there, taking them to Columbus because there's a big group of Somalis that live in Columbus, and then down to Nashville, where there's another large group of Somalis. So they're taking him across the states. And this had been going on for 10 years. And they finally busted this ring just about a week ago. Girls 12, 13, 14 years old. Another case, just ironically, uh, the FBI, for the last several years, has been running what they call Operation Cross Country, the Innocence Lost Initiative, Every now and then, once or twice a year, they will have a nationwide simultaneous bust in several cities across the country, specifically looking for girls that are in in domestic minor sex trafficking. And the most recent bust was a week ago. And uh, they had 40 cities involved. They arrested 885 individuals, 99 traffickers. So a lot of these individuals were Johns, men buying sex. And they released 69 children across the country. 12 to 17 years old. Just the tip of the iceberg. Okay, but at least they're beginning to find some of them. Uh, the, the total across the country uh, th- through the whole history of this has been about 1,250 children released. Still the tip of the iceberg. So I'm a little behind. I'm going to speed up a little bit. Where's what's the role of healthcare professionals in this? Well, this is a study that was done in 2005, talking to trafficking victims coming out of Eastern Europe into Britain. And they had been freed, and after they'd been freed in Britain, they interviewed these these victims and they asked them, among all the other questions, how many of you encountered a healthcare professional while you were in the trafficking scenario? And 28% answered yes. They encountered doctor, dentist, nurse, somebody within the healthcare profession. None of those people were freed as a result of that interaction, though. Because the healthcare professional failed to recognize their situation. We're one of three professions. If you look at law enforcement, healthcare, and clergy, and I guess I should add a fourth, and that's education, especially when dealing with uh, domestic minor sex trafficking. Those are the four professions that are going to encounter uh, trafficking victims. This is a study ironically done in Los Angeles, 2007. They went into two emergency rooms, and they surveyed the personnel working in the emergency rooms regarding their knowledge about human trafficking. They talked to the attendings, residents, PAs, and nurses. Now, three-quarters knew what trafficking was. That's a good sign. That's pretty good. Almost a third thought it was a problem in their ER population. But then you get to the real issues. Only less than one and four were confident in their ability to treat a trafficking victim. TIP is trafficking in persons. So less than one and four were confident in their ability to treat one. Six percent had knowingly treated a trafficking victim, but because they didn't know what to do with them, sent them out the door. Less than three percent had ever had any training on recognizing TIP victims. So this is really critical that we get health care providers trained on how to identify and find these victims that are presenting every day. So, I want to briefly deal with this. What are some of the ways to identify these victims? Now, first of all, you have to become familiar. What are the health care issues that they're going to present with? And think back to Jill. Obviously, they're going to be living often in inhumane living conditions, poor sanitation, inadequate nutrition, poor personal hygiene. Let me translate that. They're going to stink. They're going to turn us off. Brutal physical and emotional abuse, dangerous workplace conditions, obviously they're not going to get preventative care. Okay? They're going to look and act very strange. Okay? And more than likely, they're going to turn us off as healthcare professionals. Or possibly. When we're talking about sex trafficking, obviously they're going to have a whole slew of STIs. Before I found out about this issue, as an OBGYN, what would be my first thought when I found a girl had three different STIs? Promiscuous. Sleeps with anybody. That may be the case, but we need to create another category. And that other category is maybe she's being forced into it. So lots of STIs, frequent need of pregnancy tests. Then most of these girls, I haven't dealt with it yet, but most of them are caused to be addicted to drugs as another way of their pimp controlling them. Crack cocaine is a big, big addiction. Because once they get the girl addicted to crack cocaine, they they have another rope on her. She'll need to come back to the trafficker to get her crack. And she'll want to use the crack because of the emotional abuse of having sex with 10 to 15 different men every night. Emotionally, that just throws them out there. So they want the drugs to escape the psychological abuse that they're undergoing. So they have all kinds of psychological issues. Depression, stress-related disorders, post-traumatic stress disorder is, is off. It's it's, it's huge with these girls. Phobias, panic attacks. Again, what does that mean? They're going to act very strange. So preventative health care, non-existent. Problems are not going to present early on. When I worked ER, I can remember nurses getting mad. When they would triage the patient coming in and they would say, this woman's been dealing with this problem for three months. Why did she wait so long to come in? You know, we get frustrated at that. The other thing would be if they're presenting at 3 in the morning at the ER and it's been going on three months, what is a typical ER nurse? Sorry if any of you are ER nurses, but the typical reaction is, why in the world did they wait till now, three months later? Why don't they come in in the middle of the day? Again, we've got to create another category. Maybe there's a reason they're coming in at 3 in the morning after three to four months of not getting any better because the trafficker has decided, I'll finally will take my chances and take this girl in and get her examined. Now, this is a little different. We understand, as we sit here and learn about this, we understand this girl is a victim. Does she understand she's a victim? No, she does not. She does not. And that's very hard to understand. She she may not be happy with her circumstances. She may see that she's being taken advantage of. Sometimes she doesn't even see that. The psychological control is so strong that it takes weeks working with these girls to have them realize they've been used. They think this boyfriend out there really loves him and needs her to work and make money for him. Very similar to spouse abuse, domestic abuse. Why is it so difficult to get a woman out of a home when her husband regularly beats her? It's called trauma bonding, and it's very complex. So these girls do not see themselves as a victim. They've often been arrested. They'll be frustrated with law enforcement as a result of it. That's a whole different issue because law enforcement doesn't often understand this. And the other thing is, they don't understand what's being done to them is a crime. Okay, Even if they're being held in fear like Jill was, it's going to take a lot for her to come forward because she's so afraid of Bruce that she wants to make sure that she's going to absolutely be free of Bruce if she ever says something to somebody. So she may not know that what Bruce is doing is truly illegal. I mean, 14, 15 years old, do you understand the law? and Do you understand that? No, they do not. So we have to remember that. All right, so what are some other indicators, uh, especially when we're talking about domestic minor sex trafficking? Tattooing is a form of branding. A lot of the, uh, the traffickers will tattoo the, their street name. Not, not their real name, but their street name. They'll come up with a street name, and they'll tattoo that on the back of the neck of these girls. Again, they almost all have substance use and abuse. Weight loss, because they're not getting good nutrition. Frequent need of pregnancy tests. These are general identifiers. A girl that's got a lot of hotel room cards in her pocket, a lot of school absences, fake IDs. She's lying about her age. She's dating a much older guy. No one of these is going to tell you she's trafficked, but you start getting a lot of these different factors, and we ought to begin thinking along this line. Obviously, a girl that's never had much money growing up, all of a sudden she's got a wad of cash in her pocket. Or she gets new clothes, designer clothes, jewelry, gifts like that. She's disappearing for blocks of time. Restricted communication, afraid to talk. Lack of knowledge about a given community or location. That goes back to when these girls get moved around a lot. A lot of times they'll work off a of back page till late, late at night, early morning, Then they'll get in a car with their trafficker. The trafficker will drive them across state lines. They'll be asleep in the back seat. They wake up. They have no idea where they are. They don't know what state they're in, what city they're in. They'll kind of think, what in the world? Where am I? So if we ever come across anybody that's not sure of where they're at, that obviously is a big indicator. Pagers or cell phones, when they previously haven't had them, Inability or fear to make eye contact. There is so much shame associated with this issue. Domestic, se- commercial sex, they will not look at you in the eye. They'll be very ashamed. And that goes to the rehabilitation side, which I'll talk a little bit about. Obviously, if they're accompanied by another person who's controlling, uh, if they insist, that other person insists on giving information, that ought to be a huge flashing red light as we're in our office. Do you see any signs of physical abuse? Do they seem submissive or fearful? So what do you do? Well, not all law, local uh, law enforcement has been trained on this. And I don't really know very well about the issue in Kentucky. I do know in Ohio that almost all highway patrol, the state uh, level officials have been trained. But you get down to local police, most of them have not been trained. They will not understand this. So you just can't pick up the phone and say, "I've got a victim of domestic minor sex trafficking." They may go, "Huh?" Unfortunately, it's it's changing and there's progressing, but you cannot depend that they're they're uh, they've been trained on it. So what do you have to do? You have to do research in advance. In other words, you need to go to your particular location, find, if you've got a coalition, find in your police department any vice detective that understands the issue of trafficking, get their number ahead of time. If you're waiting until the person's in your office and you start looking, it's too late. But if you do the research ahead of time and you find the law enforcement officer that understands, and I would say that most major cities like Louisville or Lexington or wherever is going to have at least one or two officers that truly understands trafficking. Get that person's number so that when you find somebody you can call them. This is the if you're not sure, call this number, 888 373 That's the hotline, national hotline number run by Polaris Project. You give them your location, they'll tell you the nearest service provider in your area that understands trafficking and you begin working through the system with people that know and understand the issue. And that's just the uh, coalition around Columbus, Ohio. I'm um, running out of time. just want to talk briefly about Grace Haven. Um, I found out in 2007 that there are only four organizations across the country that are working to help these victims. They're in uh, Los Angeles, Um, San Diego, Atlanta, and New York, none in the Midwest. And so 2008, I started Grace Haven. Uh, That's the back of the house. Uh, We bought a house a year ago. We're renovating it now. It's going to be a long-term shelter rehabilitation for girls that have been victims of domestic minor sex trafficking. We are a Christian faith-based organization, nonprofit. We're keeping our location undisclosed. We're going to be able to house up to 10 girls at a time. While they're there, they're going to be able to get counseling individual and group counseling. Uh, They're going to be able to finish their education. The average uh, level of education for these girls is the fourth grade by the time they're found. They'll be able to stay between six and 24 months in the home. Uh, They'll be able to be loved uh, with Christian love, hopefully winning them to the Lord, definitely have a spiritual component to their healing, which is obviously very critical. So we're in the process of renovating this house. That's a picture of... uh, of where it's going to be the office there. Uh, that's the dining room. It's, it was four bedrooms. It's now five. We've added two baths because of all the girls we're going to be dealing with. So we're going to have four and a half baths, uh, adding a classroom and an exercise recreation room as well. We hope to have the renovation completed this coming March. And then we're now in the process of raising funds for, to cover our first six months of operation. Um, I've got, the been pamphlets about our organization. There's some in the back, and then there's some sign-up sheets. If you want to get on our email list, find out a little bit more about what we're doing. And I'm, this is about, I can maybe take one or two questions, but then I think we've got to get out of here, unfortunately. It took a little longer. I if you'd put back to that national the national number. It's, it's an easy number to remember, 888-3737-888. Yes. Yes. Great organization. In fact, we have a girl that's, that's in there right now. That's for adults, though, uh, not for minors. That's the big difference. There are lots of organizations working with trafficked adult women, 18 and over. Lots of them. Very few for minors. Yes. Depends on whether it's state or federal law. Hopefully, it's federal under the Tra- Trafficking Victims Protection Act. If they're convicted of sex trafficking, minimum of 15 years up to life, depending on the age of the girl. If the girl is less than 14, they can be convicted to life in prison. States, very different. Ohio, they might only get six months. Yes? The, the minors, because they are minors, would come to us through adjudication. Exactly, because they're minors. They have to, custody has to be given over. So, yeah, they would, become, they would come through whatever vice officer to children's services, through juvenile justice, to a rehabilitation home. I need to get out of here because I know there's somebody else coming in. I'll be around to answer any other questions for you, and i appreciate your, your attention. Thank you. Uh, not try and do it yourself, because uh, if they're truly being trafficked, there's probably a man within 50 yards. So what you would want to do is get in touch with a local.